1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith... I'm with Ginny Smith.
2: This week, we're chewing over the topic of food footprints. How green is your lunchbox? And what's the environmental impact of your weekly food shop? Plus, in the news, the prosthetic hand that has allowed an amputee to feel for the first time in 10 years. And we take a look at the 100 year history of this medium radio.
1: And as we always do, we're posing a scientific tea-time teaser for you. This week, we'd like you to tell us that a bag of Brazil nuts gives you a dose of radiation, equivalent to what? If you have an answer or you have any thoughts, feedback or comments for the programme, please get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com by email, or you can tweet at Naked (laughs) Scientists. The Naked
3: Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting
1: provider, on the web at UKFast.net. First this week, the Gaia space mission, which was launched on the 19th of December, is now orbiting around a virtual point in space which is called L2. It's about 1.5 million kilometres from Earth. Gaia's goal is to create the most accurate map yet of the Milky Way, and this week its one billion pixel camera was tested successfully, which is presumably a very big relief for Cambridge professor Jerry Gilmore, who's leading the project. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Chris. Jerry, good are you, to see you a again. relieved man?
4: Doubly, actually. I was at the launch, and one felt really quite relaxed after that was over, <laughs> seeing Gaia flying off so successfully. How much money was invested in that? Uh, the lifetime System. cost of the project is getting on for a billion euros so six or seven hundred million pounds. Or a third of an
1: LHC, to put it another way, I suppose.
4: Uh, Well, it's people's lives is the real cost. You know, there's hundreds of really smart engineers who have devoted decades to this, so that's the bit you can't get back.
1: And the announcement this week that the camera works, so when you put one of these things into space... How do they power them up? Do they do it system by system to do a series of checks to make sure that everything works sequentially then? Yes, the um, whole turn-on process is still still underway actually.
4: But you turn on the sort of really smart brains of the system which themselves then turn on other bits of the system and so on. There are some bits like the atomic clocks that take weeks to settle down so they're turned on early and they're still settling down. So the guy won't actually be in full science operation for another three or four months yet. But as the systems are turned on and tested, we then know whether they're working or not. And the, the really critical systems, which is the computing, the brain, the clocks and the camera, and the telescopes, they're all working fine. And that's really magnificent tribute to the people who built it and a spectacular relief for those in it. How do
1: you know that the camera is working correctly? Because all you get back is what it tells you it's seeing.
4: Essentially all Gaia is is two telescopes feeding a very, very large camera. This thing's a billion pixels, biggest camera ever put into space. It's about a metre long. You know, Compare it to the one in your phone, which is about the size of your little fingernail. This thing's the size of your tabletop. And what it's going to do is essentially feed down a high-definition movie for the next five or six years. And so the first frame of that movie is down, and it looks good. So by comparing it with previous studies of the same cluster, which by pure coincidence happened to be a study I did using the the newly repaired Hubble Space Telescope in the late 1990s. So it's pure chance that that happens to be the same cluster. But by comparing it with those Hubble measures, we know how sensitive the camera is, we know how uh, accurately the uh, Things in focus, so we know how clean the optics are, and all the news is good. I mean, there are a few technical things that will come out over the next week or two, but fundamentally, we know the mission's going to work it's terrific
1: congratulations. Have there been any problems though, or has it all been a bed of roses so far
4: no there's always a, always a few problems I mean everybody knows the famous spectacular Hubble problem and uh, Gaia's predecessor actually went in the wrong orbit. The rocket didn't fire because some twit left a bit of cloth in it. Gaia has nothing like that. There's a few little technical issues
1: that we'll be able to work through, but uh, fundamentally it's looking good. And how long before the data begins to land on your desk here in Cambridge so that you can begin to see these amazing maps in extraordinary detail emerging of, of our galaxy?
4: Well, we're processing the test data right now. That's where that image came from. So uh, we know what's going on. We're contributing to the team that's actually testing out the hardware and checking that everything's working. And, and putting the telescope in focus, that's actually a non-trivial thing to do. that will take about another month yet before it's perfectly in focus. But then the real science data will start coming in in April. So then we'll do the science verification. So that's the real hard, how good is the science going to be? So we know that technically the thing's looking promising. About April we'll come back and we'll show you the first science results and then we'll be expect to be in full routine doing nothing but exciting science from about May onwards for
1: another five or six years. You must come back and tell us how you're getting on. Jerry. thank you very much and congratulations. Great mm-hmm. to have you on the programme. Jerry Gilmore from Cambridge University's Cavendish Laboratory. Ginny.
2: So I've been looking this week at a story about the first prosthetic hand that's been developed that allows its user to actually feel what they're touching in real time. So this paper was published in Science Translational Medicine, and Dennis Sorensen from Denmark became the first amputee to use this new prosthetic hand and experience a restored sense of touch. So artificial hands that can open and close have been around for a while, but there's a bit of a problem because there's no feedback, so users have to be really careful when they're picking something up that they don't accidentally crush it. So Stanzia Rapopovich and his team at EPFL in Switzerland and SSSA in Italy have developed this technology which allows a user to detect the shape and texture of the object as well as how hard they're gripping it. How? Interesting you ask. They do this actually by detecting electrical changes that are generated as the tension in artificial tendons on the hand changes. So they're using almost the same system that we use in a natural hand. And then a computer algorithm has to convert those into the right kind of pulses so that they can be sent along nerve cells. And they actually implanted electrodes into Dennis's stump, into the remaining bit of his arm, and they received those signals and send them onwards through his remaining nerves. Now, they were quite worried that the nerves in the stump wouldn't be sensitive anymore because they hadn't been used in over nine years. But actually, they found it worked pretty well. They gave him about a week of training and he was able to control the movement of the prosthetic hand by contracting different muscles in his stump so he could control it and then get the feedback. They tested out how well it was working by blindfolding Dennis and putting headphones on him so he didn't have any other input and he was asked to do various different tasks. He managed to learn to apply different amounts of pressure when asked with his fingers to grasp and manipulate different kinds of objects and even to detect the properties of these objects.
1: That was going to be the critical question because one of the complaints that people have when trying to use these things previously is that you apply far too much force to something really delicate and it just falls to pieces or you destroy it so he can actually sort of do tactile exploration almost with this then
2: yeah he could tell how stiff different objects were so whether they were squishy and he could use that to pick them up and apply the right amount of force now it's still a bit of a way away from commercial use unfortunately and after this week of trials Dennis is back to using a standard prosthetic which must be a very strange experience but the researchers need to miniaturize these electronics so that the hand's more portable than it is at the moment and they also say they want to fine tune the sensory technology to give you a bit more detail and also an idea of where the fingers are, which they don't quite have at the moment. So not quite there yet, but a really promising step forward for the future.
1: Ginny, thank you. Sticking with the nervous system, this week doctors have begun to bring Formula One racing driver Michael Schumacher out of his coma, which was medically induced following a severe head injury that he sustained while he was skiing. To find out how medically induced comas can help people with brain injuries, here's your quick fire science on the subject with Kate Lamble and Hannah Critchlow.
5: A coma is a state of unconsciousness when a person is unresponsive and cannot be woken. Comas can be caused by a drug overdose, head injury or purposefully induced by doctors to aid in recovery from trauma. After an injury, brain tissue swells. This can restrict the flow of blood through the brain and worsen the damage. Inducing a coma reduces the amount of energy that the brain requires and so protects the areas at risk of low oxygen from hypoxia. Brain swelling is also tackled by cooling, which reduces the brain's requirement for oxygen. Alternatively, patients can undergo an operation to remove a section of bone from their skull. This allows the brain to swell without compressing and potentially damaging other areas. Patient responsiveness in comas can vary. In very deep comas, such as those that are medically induced, a patient may be unresponsive to pain. But less sedated patients may be able to even hear conversations. Unlike in the movies, waking up from a coma is usually a gradual process. In medically induced comas, cooling is reduced by about a quarter of a degree Celsius every hour to avoid the brain swelling again. When the patient is able to make a conscious response to instructions, they are no longer classed as being in a coma. However, any damage to the brain sustained through a traumatic brain injury is often not apparent until the patient has woken from the coma. Schumacher's family will have to wait until the anaesthetic stops being administered to see what the long-term impact of his head injury might be.
2: Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble, and you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientists.com/quickfirescience.
1: People who feel powerless perceive the world of weight. Very differently. That's according to a new study out this week in the Journal of Psychology. Unhee Lee is a researcher at Cambridge University. She is the lead author. Welcome to the programme. So you've you found that people who feel powerless actually find things that are a demand on them physically more mm-hmm. challenging.
6: Yes. So I did work on social power and how that influences our perception of physical properties, like weight perception, how they feel the weight of objects. And actually, I asked people to lift those boxes, as you can see.
1: Yep. So and I've got a nice big box
6: mm-hmm.
1: here. So just a cardboard box.
6: Yeah, just cardboard boxes. And all of them looking exactly the same, but I would load them with different number of books to have different weights. And I asked them to lift all these boxes. Yep. And sometimes for some of the studies, I actually manipulate people's sense of power. So there'll be two groups where powerful and powerless group and they lift boxes and I compare the weight estimates that people give or I just look at like personal sense of power which is more like a trait power and I try to see the relationship with that with the weight estimates that people give again.
1: So we can look at how you manipulated people's Mm -hmm. sense of empowerment in just a second so the initial finding is that people who feel they're less powerful would judge a box which is a standard weight to be heavier yes. than someone who is pretty pumped up and feels that they are already pretty much in control and in pole position mm-hmm. socially.
6: Yes. So about the manipulation method that we've used. Right? How did so, you do that? So, you, so t- you
1: take someone and you make them feel powerless? <laughs> it doesn't seem all straightforward. All powerful, for
6: so both. So we use two different procedures. So it's been kind of established in the literature of psychology and in especially in social power. So First one we've used was this manipulation called posture manipulation. So we either tell them to sit in a way that's quite expansive, so like they take bigger space on this um, nice, um, like, ergonomic office chair. So I ask them to put their arms on the armrest and on the desk next to them, and like ask them to like cross their legs. So for them, I think, I mean, then that's for them to feel powerful. Whereas in the power less condition, I would ask them to sit in a more constricted posture so I asked them to put their hands under their thighs and put their legs together and yeah that's how I did it for the posture manipulation.
1: And did you explore with them when they were adopting those positions whether they genuinely did feel more powerful or not?
6: Um, We don't do that because it usually happens what we think is happens like unconsciously so they are not actually aware that their sense of power changes. And also they are not aware that this whole sense of power and this whole weight box lifting is anything to do with. So we are trying to see this unconscious influence on their weight estimates that they give.
1: And people who feel more socially empowered or less do judge the mass of the box to be different? Yes,
6: different. So we found like statistically different weight estimate that they give in these two groups and also three groups as well. We had like neutral control condition. How do you account for the findings? In terms of mechanism, really, we think this is like an adaptive mechanism that's evolved in us. So for example, we know powerless people live in this uncertainty and scarcity of resources. So maybe this whole exaggerated um, perception by powerless people uh, might prevent them from just taking further actions, exhausting all their limited resources. So in a way, this will be adaptive.
1: And how might I apply this in my own life then? I mean, if, if I go around taking up lots of desk space, does this make me feel better?
6: I think it does, definitely. And one thing I think everyone should know from this research is that this relationship happens all like kind of automatically. They're not aware of this happening. So sometimes just because you feel quite low in sense of power, you might be kind of prevented from putting 100% effort into something that they're doing. This will be kind of disadvantageous in some situations. So I think if you're aware of this link, at least, we are not going to let that happen.
1: And if you feel stronger physically does that then rub off on you socially do you also have a sense of social empowerment anyway because you feel stronger physically
6: well i've never thought about that um so that's the other way around but one thing i know is if you think about the whole relationship between posture and their sense of power how posture actually manipulated their sense of power like socially so maybe like in that way you feeling like physically powerful could maybe lead you to feel quite powerful in like a social sense in that case
1: Eunhee Lee from Cambridge University, who's taking up plenty of room in the seat. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. And we are, later on in the programme, going to be talking about the whole world of food and your food footprint, how green is your dinner plate. We'd like you to tell us actually what you're thinking of cooking today, because we have a studio full of experts who can look at the environmental footprint of what you're choosing to eat, and they can tell us how sustainable or not it is you can email chris at scientist.com or you can also tweet at Naked Scientists. Mark has told us he's dishing up a breast of lamb and a selection of vegetables while we're on air. Very nice too. I hope you'll send us in some uh, slightly more boringly. Andrew Keynes has tweeted at Naked Scientists and said, toast. Gosh, so I'm at least going to add a bit of bacon to mine.
2: So this week, Cambridge Wireless held a conference to celebrate 100 years of radio. This group aims to bring together technology companies across the globe, and for this event, five speakers were chosen to talk about different parts of the history of radio. I went along and talked to each of the speakers about their time period to find out all about the history of broadcasting. Radio was invented in the 1880s, but it only began to be put into practical use at the start of the 20th century. It wasn't initially used for broadcasting, but instead to send messages between businesses and governments using Morse code. Colin Smithers.
7: But very quickly, then it was socially important. So reporting on yacht races started to happen as early as 1900. First speech transitions about 1905, but not really suitable for broadcasting.
2: In fact, the first broadcast radio stations weren't established until the 1920s. Families would spend their evenings together gathered around a wireless, and this was the golden age for radio. But in 1939, the Second World War hit radio became not just a form of entertainment, but a vital weapon for politicians. Geoff Varela.
4: Well, I think it's a mixed blessing because both for Britain and Germany and Italy, wireless broadcasting, of course, fueled nationalist identity. And it was those nationalists, those, the clash of those nationalist identities that actually caused the Second World War. And actually it was Winston Churchill's wartime broadcasts that were tremendously important in terms of keeping the sort of British morale and I think radio broadcasting was essential to winning the war.
2: In the decades after the war, radio technology made some important advances. Steve Hazeldean.
7: Well, the biggest change really was the move from the old valves to transistors and integrated circuits. So radios went from being devices that were stuck in a room to being portable and anywhere in the house
2: radios became smaller and cheaper, meaning many households could afford more than one. Rather than the whole family gathering around a single wireless, younger and older members could listen separately. This opened up a whole new market of radio listeners.
7: What really changed the whole scene was that in the 1960s, we got a number of pirate radio stations, but more importantly, the music they played was for a much younger audience. And it took a few years, but of course the BBC then reacted and uh, Radio 1 was established and it's never looked back.
2: Although invented in 1933... FM radio really took off in the second half of the 20th century. The frequency band was broadened, allowing national coverage, so many BBC stations moved from AM to FM. Nigel Lynch. Uh,
4: as you drive around the country, of course, you are effectively picking up a slightly different frequency. To aid that, they developed the radio data system, RDS. In fact, the BBC pioneered the development of RDS. Uh, most people would think of it today as the thing that brings the traffic reports up, but it was actually brought in to help tune FM stations as you move around. The higher frequency also means you have shorter aerials as well, so portable devices become a lot more popular.
2: But FM's dominance didn't last. In the 1990s, digital radio was developed and began to take over. Now, of course, many of us don't tune in at all and instead listen to our radio programmes over the internet. Andy Sutton.
3: We, we did find during the period with GSM devices, uh, so the Global System for Mobile Communications, or 2G, that we started to integrate FM radios into the actual mobile phone itself. Uh, nowadays, of course, we tend not to do that, rather take streamed content over the digital cellular network itself into the device.
2: Andy Sutton, and thanks to all of the rest of the speakers at the Cambridge Wireless Conference. It'll be interesting to see where radio goes in the next 100 years. Hopefully we'll still be here. Well, probably not me, but some kind of (laughs) naked scientist anyway.
1: Do you know, everyone said, as the Buggles sang, video killed the radio stars, and it didn't quite work out like that because when the internet came along, everyone said the internet was going to kill radio, and it's this enduring medium, and I think it's the fact that it's the audio dimension and you can do other things while you listen to the radio which you can't do with other media if you're watching a television program you've got to watch it haven't you whereas if you're on the radio listening to it you can cook the dinner or as other people are doing serving their roast lamb or whatever while you're listening
2: exactly it's also so instant as well tv programs take a lot longer to make than radio so you can't necessarily get that sort of instant news like we do
1: Well, here's some instant news for you. A new strain of flu has emerged in China. This is now H10N8. It's been published in the journal The Lancet this week from uh, Nanchang City. This is the public health team there in China. And what they have discovered or or described is the case of a 73-year-old lady who paid a visit to, last November, a poultry market where she bought a chicken Within a couple of days she was suffering high temperatures and symptoms of a heavy cold. This then became a bad chest and within nine days she had died of respiratory failure. And on her chest x-ray you can see there's very severe damage to all parts of the lungs, which is normally a hallmark of viral infection. The team in question were able to grow from her lungs this new flu virus by extracting samples and then putting them into eggs. And eggs are used as a culture medium for growing flu. And out of that came this new H10N8. It's never been detected in humans before. And now they've read the genetic sequence of the virus. Interestingly, it appears that it has the inner workings of what we call h7n9 which if you cast your mind back was a virus which emerged last year and has now been detected right across china and has caused a number of human cases but it appears to have done a sort of pick and mix with another flu virus to give it this h10n8 outer coat so it's a a new virus with a new coating and some old clockwork working inside to make it spread
2: So how worried should we be about something like this? Is it likely to spread and is it likely to be dangerous?
1: Well, sort of reassuringly, at the end of this Lancet paper where they describe it, they say that none of the people who have cared for this lady in hospital have picked up the virus. So that suggests it has poor ability at the moment to spread between humans. They also say that it's sensitive to the antiviral drug Tamiflu, which is again encouraging because it means that we can at least give people prophylaxis or preventative treatment with that if they're exposed. More worryingly, they point out that in the time it's taken them to publish this paper, so on the 26th of January, another person has now been diagnosed and has died with H10N8, this virus – And they also highlight the fact that it doesn't cause very severe disease in poultry, so you wouldn't know if your chickens are incubating, carrying or infecting you with it, which is again a worry. And then they say that the H5N1 virus that came out in Hong Kong in 1997 and was very severe indeed, the first case of that was not followed by another case for a further six months suggesting that this might be just the tip of the iceberg, which is why we need these sort of public health measures to watch because this could turn into a new pandemic going around the world if, if we don't keep an eye on it.
2: Ooh, worrying. If you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for the news items on our website at com slash news.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, email chris at scientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. We're actually asking you to tweet in and tell us what it is that you're cooking up for dinner because we're talking about the science of sustainable living and food specifically this week. In a little while, we'll hear about how we move things around the country on freight. We'll also hear about the refrigeration costs incurred in storing food and whether that's worth it. But first, let's talk to Julian Cotty, who is from Good Food Oxford. And Julian actually has been at a conference in Cambridge this week where they've been discussing these very issues. Hello, Julian. Hi there. First of all, what is Good Food Oxford?
3: Good Food Oxford is part of the UK Sustainable Food Cities Network. Uh, so it's our contribution as a city to creating a more sustainable food system, starting with businesses and
1: organisations and citizens in our own town. So why wouldn't food be sustainable?
3: Well, we know now that the food system as a whole is a major contributor towards greenhouse gas emissions globally. So something like 20 to 30%, depending on how you measure, of total global greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system. That's all the way through from production to processing to transport to even cooking in our own kitchens and industrially and waste and the end of life of that food system. So it's a pretty major bit of the emissions total. And there's also a whole lot of other associated environmental costs on land, water and energy, as well as impacts on biodiversity. So it's it's really one of the main impacts that we as human beings have on the
1: planet. But at the same time, we have to eat. So are we not therefore obliged to have some kind of food footprint, regardless of what we choose to eat?
3: That's absolutely true. Yeah, Everything we eat, it has to be produced somewhere. It has to take up some piece of land that needs water to grow. And there are other inputs into that system that have impacts, globally but the choices that we make about what we eat have a huge impact on what that footprint is
1: well i've been shopping um, i've got my shopping bag here so i'm just going to pull a few things out of my weekly shop and i thought you could perhaps tell me whether i get sort of null point or whether actually i've made a good choice okay so first okay. thing i've got in here because i'm lazy i have a bag of, uh, of of salad is that a good food choice or a bad food choice
3: On the face of it, this seems like like a pretty good choice because salad growing is mostly probably done in this country or in Europe, so it's not been transported a vast distance. Uh, The land and energy and greenhouse gas footprint of that product is also not huge, so it ticks there. One thing that might concern us about your choice of salad is an issue that's been in the press a lot recently about waste. Now, globally, around a third of food... That's produced is wasted, and the figure for things like salad is even higher than that, uh, and Tesco last year published their the first UK supermarket actually to publish their food waste figures, and they revealed that about 68% of all the salad that is produced for them is wasted. More is wasted than actually is getting eaten, and that, that in itself fits into a, a bigger issue of food waste within the system. And Julian, I wait. promise
1: to eat all of this bag of salad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, the next item in my bag, okay, I've got some pork cutlets in here. I don't know yeah. where they've come from, but they do have a tractor, so they look like they're presumably homegrown.
3: A red tractor? Yes. That's, yeah, a British um, production.
1: So is that good or bad? Um,
3: well, it's pretty good. I mean, we've, we've learned recently that actually the impact of transporting our food may not have quite as big an impact as we thought in the past, but it's still a good idea to eat from as close as possible. So that's pretty good. That it's, and obviously supports the UK economy, et cetera. And we've always got, got to think about these other things as well as environmental impacts. But generally, meat is one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, especially lamb and beef, because they're ruminant animals and they release a lot of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. So pork may be a little bit better on that, on that count because they're not ruminants.
1: I'm redeeming myself mildly. So given, given you, <laughs> thank you, given that we've identified these problems and my shopping bag is not uh, blameless, what can we actually do? What are you trying to do in Oxford, for example, that we could also mirror in other cities, which will reduce the impact of what goes into our shopping bags?
3: What we're trying to do, first of all, is to work out what the current situation is in a city like Oxford, because the food system is quite complicated. There are lots of interactions. And obviously, as I was saying, we have to think not just about our environmental impact, but also all the other parts of our economy, the impacts on equity in the food chain, about our food culture and what's tasty. We've got to think about all those things linked together. Um, So what we're trying to do is get a handle on that by doing a a process called food printing, which is food footprinting, basically, to work out where in the system most of the impacts are coming from and therefore where we can make the best impact where we can put our resources to best use
1: and hopefully ultimately inform the consumer which I hope will then lead to their changing their behavior. Julian, thank you very much. This is Julian Cotty. He's from Good Food Oxford.
2: Now, as Julian mentioned, we used to think that food miles were one of the most important things in reducing food's environmental impact due to the amount of carbon involved in transportation. David Sibon is an engineer from the Centre for Sustainable Road Freight here in Cambridge who's working to reduce not necessarily the number of lorries on our roads, but the carbon emissions they release. Hi there, David. Hi. So why is road freight so bad for our environment?
8: Well, road freight uh, is an essential part of modern living. We can't live without road freight. We have lots of big vehicles and they use a lot of fuel but only about 20% of the total road emissions from road. So cars are actually a lot worse than trucks in the end.
2: So we have to get our food from where it's grown to where we buy it to our houses. What can we do to try and reduce the amount of emissions that we're producing in that process?
8: The biggest part of emissions in that process comes from the last mile. That means picking it up in your car. The family car is the least efficient freight vehicle known to man. It weighs a ton and a half and it carries 40 kilograms of freight. About 97% of the energy used to move that car goes in moving the car, and about 3% in moving the freight. If you have a big truck, most of the energy goes into moving the freight, and much less into moving the truck. So the truck is much more efficient, in fact, than the family car. The best thing to do is home delivery.
2: Uh, I- actually, in fact, tend to order my, my food online and then you get a, a small... It's not exactly a truck, it's a van delivering it, but I guess it's going on to other people and delivering other stuff as well.
8: It's doing a whole lot of deliveries around the town and it saves all of those car trips and all those car trips cause a lot of traffic congestion. Traffic congestion in turn causes a lot of fuel. Everybody on the road uses a lot more fuel when the traffic is congested. So if you can have very efficient home delivery... It's definitely a big part of what we can do.
2: Oh, well, good to know that I'm being green, not just lazy. So is there anything we can do to improve? I mean, I know that you've said the trucks aren't as bad as the cars, but what can we do to make them even greener?
8: Well, there's all kinds of things that can happen that you can do to improve the fuel efficiency and the CO2 emissions of the freight system. And they're broadly in two categories. One are kind of logistics things, that's how you arrange the system. And the other are things to do with the vehicles. And uh, there's all kinds of possibilities with the vehicles themselves. In general, making the vehicles bigger is almost always better. So the example of home delivery is one clear one. But if you can imagine that if you've got a delivery to a convenience store in town, if you have to drive two trucks instead of one, it uses a lot more fuel. So if you can have larger trucks going into city centres, perhaps out of hours so that they don't get mixed up with bicycles and kids going to school, then that's the kind of thing we can do to really improve efficiency.
2: That sounds like quite an easy thing to do, just make the trucks a bit bigger and send them in at <clears throat> night. Is that something that's being done?
8: There's been a lot, of, uh, lot more movement on that issue. The Olympics was a good example. In London, there were a lot more deliveries of freight at night. You bump up against people who don't like to have big trucks driving around towns at night, and that's a problem. So we've got a kind of a, a social dilemma you know either we have more efficient vehicles running out of hours with the uh, inconvenience perhaps of a bit of noise or we have all the freight vehicles hitting the roads at 7am which is what they do now just when we're driving the kids to school and going to work and peak traffic congestion time and you know parking outside convenience stores and stuff so it's a sort of a social problem we need to sort out
2: and you've mentioned a few times that Freight isn't actually the worst thing. What is it that's causing the most carbon emissions through the sort of chain of food being grown to getting to our plates?
8: Uh, Well, one of the big big issues, I think, is refrigeration. You know, if you have a bottle of water, you know, you bring it from France, uh, bring it uh, on a boat and a couple of trucks, the worst part of it is if you actually put it in the fridge and leave it in the fridge in the supermarket for a couple of days before it's bought, then it uses a whole lot more energy. And I think that the design of fridges in supermarkets is terrible. And if you go to a supermarket, uh, for example, at the railway station not too far from here, you see all of the workers in thermal clothes because it's so cold in the shop. The fridges are pumping out cold. There are heaters and fans. It's, there's just piles of energy going to the shop. And what we need is, uh, is doors on fridges and a bit of sensible policy in supermarkets.
2: Thank you. Thanks to David Simbon from the Centre for Sustainable Road Freight.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. We're talking about sustainable living and sustainable eating this week. And before anyone asks us, all these Aussies turning up on the programme, we'll meet another antipodean in a minute. She's from New Zealand. Amory marie Ha will talk about wasted food. We didn't ship them all in for the programme. They live here before anyone panics. OK, there's no massive carbon footprint associated with The Naked Scientists, over and above normal programming. Now, we've heard from David Sabon, the gauntlet being thrown down there, we need doors on fridges, they waste an enormous amount of energy. And in fact, some stats we've seen suggest that refrigeration is a bigger environmental issue than transporting food around the country and around the world in the first place. Well, Graham Maidment is Professor of Air and Refrigeration at London South Bank University, and he's with us to give his perspective. Hello, Graham. Hello, Chris. So first of all, what do you think of the comments that David's making about the fact that you go into a store and there's all these arrays of beautiful fridges full of products and they're all open?
7: Well, firstly, the comment I'd just like to come back on is the carbon emissions associated with refrigeration and air conditioning around the world. We're a very intensive industry. We do a lot of things for society, producing lots of cooling for lots of applications. And as a result, we use lots of energy and produce lots of carbon dioxide. And uh, I think the statistic you quoted was something like double that of air traffic. We produced uh, about 10% of all carbon emissions worldwide. Supermarkets are energy intensive. There's about 7,000 in the UK and they produce or they use something like 3% of all UK electricity. And much of that is for refrigeration. Now, something like 30 to 50% of... All the energy that goes into a supermarket goes into the fridge. And David's right, at the same time that cold leaks out into the store and it has to be uh, offset with additional heating. So supermarkets, they use lots of energy, but there's lots of them. In terms of the design of fridges, fridges have been around for many, many years and they've evolved. The issue of doors on cabinets has come up over the last three or four years and a number of supermarkets are using doors on cabinets but there's other things that we can do as well to reduce our emissions
1: i'll tell you what i found some things that have evolved in my fridge as well but that's a different story is it just because there's this perception that if you put a door on a fridge people won't buy things
7: I think there is some psychology associated with retail and I think anything that you put a barrier in its place or you don't display in the right way so you don't get the lighting levels in the right way, it creates a potential marketing barrier. So um, I think retail is all about you know, people seeing something and buying it impulsively. But these um, numbers
1: that you've put on this are so staggeringly high uh, that this suggests that we need some kind of policy, not just in Britain but across the entire world, to stop people doing what I would regard as flagrantly wasting energy, because if everyone has to put a door on their fridges, then no one's at a disadvantage relative to their competitors, are they? And then the motivation and the and the impact is on people to develop fridges that people do want to open the door of and, and buy the contents anyway.
7: Yeah, I mean, doors on fridges are a good thing, but there's other things that we need to do. We don't just need to, to hang on to a door on a fridge because if the carcass of the fridge and the components within it are the worst around, then putting a door on it won't, won't do anything. If you think about your home, you know, if you fit double glazing, leave the front door open, you know,
1: What's <laughs> it, the, point, the, indeed? The, the, the
7: double glazing do, the, doesn't have an impact. So there's lots of things that we need to do and there's lots of things that the industry in the UK are doing. But there's other things we can do in terms of the storage practice. You know, I often go into the supermarket and I see chilled naan bread and fresh pasta in the fridge. Well, you know, what's all that about? Why aren't we buying, you know, the pasta from the the dried pasta or or the unchilled naan bread or or wine? You know, why do we buy chilled wine? So there's lots of practices that we have to change, I think, to actually reduce our need for cooling in the first place.
1: Coming back to a point that you were making, though, which is about the fridge itself, so irrespective of whether the door is left open or not, what we put in the fridges has caused a lot of scientific controversy over years. Not just the food, I mean the refrigerants, the chemicals that make the fridge do its job, because we had a huge hole in the ozone layer, owing to the fact that we were putting chemicals in these fridges that were very good... Good at keeping fridges cold, but they were very bad for the environment.
7: Yeah, um, ozone depletion was discovered in the 1970s, and the Montreal Protocol was put in place to ban CFCs, and, and the ozone layer is now recovering. But the, the granddaughter of, of CFCs we found is a potent greenhouse gas, so it's, a, it's called a HFC, hydrofluorocarbon. These are refrigerants that we're, we're steering away from now.
1: So in other words, by replacing CFCs with something that we thought would be better for the ozone layer, it's just an environmental insult in a different direction?
7: Well, it's had a different environmental impact. And at the time, clearly we didn't know. But you know, it's come to pass now that the HFC refrigerants have got a high greenhouse effect. So now our industry is moving away from these back towards some natural refrigerants. And the sort of refrigerants that we use are things like Carbon dioxide, which um, is a greenhouse gas, but it's got very low greenhouse gas potential. Ammonia, hydrocarbons and things like this. But these, all, all these refrigerants have got their challenges, which is why we stopped using them many years ago.
1: Well, Graham, I'm relieved that someone like you is on the case if not just the fridge case. Thank you very much. That's Graham Maidment. He's from London's South Bank University. And incidentally, we've heard from quite a few people who are telling us about their dinner this week, Ginny, so perhaps you can talk to uh, Marianne when she's on in a second. We've heard from Mark, who says he's having roast lamb. Uh, We've got someone eating toast. Amir's having rice. And Bavish says he's been eating fruit all day, but is now having curry, which is encouraging. And do you want to know what you're having for dinner tonight? Your mum's cooking, she says. Uh, Apparently uh, her husband, your dad, is cooking roast chicken with potatoes and leaks from the garden isn't that environmentally responsible
2: oh i'm jealous you're listening to the naked scientists with chris smith and me jinny smith now don't forget later we'll be answering your questions and putting them to our panel of experts so you can get in touch with us you can email chris at com, or you can tweet at naked scientists now we've heard a bit about how we can reduce the carbon footprint of the food that we eat but what about the food that we don't eat An astonishing 7 million tonnes of food and drink is thrown out in the UK every year. And Marie-Anne Ha from Anglia Ruskin University appeared at the Food for a Greener Future conference in Cambridge to talk about the impact of wasted food. So Marie-Anne, I mentioned 7 million tonnes of food and drink there. It sounds like a huge amount. Is that particularly large compared to other countries?
0: I don't know how it compares to other countries, but it is an enormous amount. For individuals, it works out at around £200 per person per year of food that is being wasted. And this particular food is actually avoidable food waste, as it's called. So it's food that is perfectly edible and is being thrown out, either because people think it's gone off, it may have gone off, or they've served too much. Those are the main reasons that people decide to throw their food out. So people are taking
2: perfectly good food and throwing it away. Why do you think that happens?
0: Chris mentioned that something had evolved in his fridge. This is one reason people do not look after their fridges properly and uh, food tends to get pushed to the back and forgotten about. So that is perfectly edible food that goes off and there's nothing, once it gets that bad, you can't actually resurrect it. There are also problems with food labels. Uh, very simple, people do not understand that when you have something that says that is best before, fresh potatoes are a classic example, these are actually edible for a long time. I either grow my own potatoes or get them from a local shop, so I do not have a any food label on my potatoes. And potatoes do last a long time. You need to store them correctly in a dark place and preferably coolish, not necessarily the fridge. And they will last for two or three months, but people do not understand this because the supermarkets put a label on that say best before.
2: So why do you think we have this big problem that people... I guess, pay so much attention to the labels
0: rather than what's actually inside? This is actually part of the problem with sustainability. People have forgotten skills and common sense of actually when you look at a food or smell a food, you certainly know if it's gone off or not. So Chris's evolving creature at the back of his fridge, he wouldn't know from the look, the smell, and probably the noises it's making that it's definitely gone off. But there are a lot of things like bread that might be slightly stale People throw that out instead of toasting it or making a bread and butter pudding or looking for alternate uses. And it's just people are no longer relying on their own common sense.
2: And is this just a problem of people, once they've bought the food, then throwing it away? Or is it happening earlier up in the chain of produce as well?
0: It's happening earlier in the chain as well. We waste around about a third of our food that is actually grown on the farm it's destroyed before it gets to the farm gate. And a lot of that is because of the perception of what food should look like, that it must be perfect. Now, this has partly come through from previous EU regulations, which said that we could sell either Grade 1 or Grade 2, which were physically perfect bits of fruit or vegetable or meat. That regulation has been changed, so we can now sell what is known, for example, jam fruit, jam strawberries, which are smaller, slightly deformed. People are still so used to seeing perfect fruit, vegetables in particular, that's um, what I'm particularly interested in, that they often do not choose the misshapen fruit and it will be left on the shelf.
2: Now, do you have any comments about our um, listeners who've told us about their dinner? So we've got someone making roast lamb, someone having rice, which sounds very boring if they're just having rice. We've got someone having toast and someone making curry. Which of those would you say is the most sustainable dinner?
0: Well, if the roast lamb was a local lamb, then that would be very good. I would hope they're having some fruit and vegetables with it or some vegetables with it. Your father's homegrown leeks sound to me like the most sustainable (laughs) dinner we've had so far. And I presume he's got some local potatoes as well to go with that. So that's pretty good. Great. Well, thanks a lot,
2: Marianne. That was Marianne Howe from the Anglia Ruskin University.
1: And you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. We're talking about the question of sustainable food and uh, sustainable living this week. And we have with us David seaburn and also Marianne Ha, who are two experts in this field. We've got your questions coming in through Facebook and a range of other sources. Let's kick off, uh, first of all, perhaps one for you, Marianne. Anya Kempista says, is being a vegetarian better for the environment? And what about people who eat fish who are also vegetarians?
0: Really the main question here is how was your food farmed? Organic farming is given as the most sustainable method of farming we have at the moment because it reintroduces nutrients back into the soil, all the nutrients that are taken out are put back. And there are a lot of regulations around looking after animals as well as fruit and vegetables and making sure that everything is as sustainable as possible. So if you have an organic lamb that is fed correctly on grass and is outdoor fed, then it is actually a relatively sustainable beast. Whereas if you have a soybean that has been grown, for example, in the Amazon and then freighted over, that is not particularly sustainable. So really, it's a personal choice and you really need to look carefully at the provenance of your food. David, are there any things that are
1: specifically worse in terms of freight, as far as vegetarians moving vegetables
8: around versus moving meat? Well, things that get refrigerated, again, is a problem. Things that come by air is a problem. Sea freight is uh, very low energy. Air freight uses the same miles per gallon as uh, driving a car, and that's very expensive.
2: Actually, that leads on to a question from Roger Rowe, who wants to know, when fruit and vegetables are imported... Do you know whether they're going to be imported by air freight or sea shipping? And is it that broccoli is always done by air and cabbage is always done by sea? or Is there a way that you can know how it's been brought into the country?
8: Uh, not that I know of. That's it's a very a p- good point, isn't it? It's a pretty, yeah. good, pretty, pretty good question. Uh, you know, if it's very fresh, fresh flowers, they, they have to be air freighted. There's no way they can come in any other way. But a, a lot of uh, vegetables now can be picked green and don't necessarily have to be air freighted.
1: Marianne, uh, quickly, a question from Alice Danger. What a lovely name. Uh, I'm interested in the loss of nutrients, she says, over the long commute. What things, if you can't have them fresh, are not worth getting at all?
0: Salad vegetables, actually. Anything with a dark green leaf loses certainly things like vitamin C within 24 hours of picking. So you really need to be looking carefully. Anything that's too old, there's been a paper recently that found that even fat-soluble vitamins, which we thought would stay for a while, actually break down after four months. That's in sweet potatoes. So it's really looking carefully, again, where things come from and seasonality. So if something's in season, it's likely to be fresher and better for you.
2: So what about eating fish? Is that better or worse than meat or vegetarian, say?
0: It's the same answer. It depends on how it's fished. So Marine Council certified fish is fished in such a way that it should protect fish stocks and allow regeneration within the oceans. Again there's transportation involved there as well because we are landlocked in Cambridge so it's not that easy unless we have freshwater fish.
2: And what about refrigeration because I guess fish goes off quite quickly so you have to keep it quite well refrigerated so does that make it worse?
8: Well it's often frozen isn't it? So that's uh, that's expensive on refrigeration side.
2: Is freezing things worse than keeping them refrigerated?
8: Well, it's a good question. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy to freeze stuff. Uh, the temperature is much lower, so you have a lot more leakage of cold. On the other hand, refrigeration in supermarkets is almost always has uh, a lid uh, or a door, so that's a lot better from that point of view.
2: But also, freezers can be positive in that they reduce food waste. So when I cook too much dinner, I freeze some of it and have it another night. So there's pluses and minuses.
0: Yes, because it is one very good way of decreasing food waste, freezing any food that you see is getting up to the use-by date. I keep my butter frozen because it doesn't go off and go rancid that way.
1: We've got a tweet here from Wayne Holmes. Hashtag wishful thinking. I'm inclined to agree that says if only they could figure out how to grow avocado pears in Europe and then we wouldn't have to buy the puny ones from Peru that cost two quid each and we could pick them like we do apples in autumn. It's a quite important point in that though, isn't there? Where, where if we could have growth in an area rather than ship it in from across the world, it would have lower environmental footprint, wouldn't it?
0: This is the whole question about seasonality. If we eat only our local seasonal fruit and vegetable at this time of year um, certainly in the UK we're limited to brassicas (laughs) Um, however we do have a wide variety now they have gradually been bred over the centuries so yes it is a problem we would not be eating avocados because they are not at all local and I think even with warmer winters I don't think we'll ever get to a stage where we see avocado trees growing in Cambridge
1: Marianne, and also David Sibon from Cambridge University. Thank you very much. Well, let's stick with some hard-to-answer questions. It's time for a rather snotty question of the week from Hannah Critchlow.
5: With post Christmas Sniffles sticking around, what
1: do you think about this one?
5: Hi, Naked Scientists.
6: My name's Sarah and I live in Tasmania, Australia. I'd like to know, is it true that if you have a chest or a head cold and the mucus turns yellow or green, this is a sign of a bacterial infection and requires antibiotics?
5: So, can you detect the stage and severity of your cold by the colour of your snot? Over to Dr. S. consultant in infectious diseases at Cambridge University.
9: Mucus is something that everybody has. It's produced by the goblet cells in the epithelial tissues, which line the mouth, the nose, the sinuses, the throat, the lungs and the intestinal tract. It acts as a protective blanket over these surfaces and prevents the tissues underneath from drying out. Mucus acts as part of the body's defence system by trapping unwanted substances like bacteria and dust before they get into the body. It also contains antibodies that recognise invaders like bacteria and viruses and enzymes that kill the invaders that it traps and a protein called mucin. Even when you're healthy, your body churns out 1 to 1.5 litres of mucus per day and most of this trickles down your throat so you don't even notice it. However, there may be times when you do notice your mucus and this isn't usually because you're producing more of it but because the consistency has changed. And the things that can trigger this are respiratory infections or allergies or contact with something that's irritating.
5: Mm. In which case, can the colour of your snot signify whether you have a bacterial infection?
9: If you look at your mucus normally, it's sort of quite clear but at times it can be yellow or green or even red or brown. When you get an infection, and that can be bacterial or viral, the bugs damage the epithelial cells lining your nose and throat and can cause inflammation. And your body responds by sending white blood cells called neutrophils to fight the infection. And these neutrophils produce enzymes called myeloperoxidase enzymes that release oxygen and free radicals to kill the bugs or the viruses. And these enzymes contain iron, and the iron is what gives the mucus a green colour. So the neutrophils can die during the process of killing the infection and the green mucus therefore doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bacterial infection. It may be a viral infection.
5: So green snot can signify active immune cells giving off iron to help fight either a viral or bacterial infection. It doesn't necessarily mean you need antibiotics though. Thanks to Estée and also to Sarah for getting in touch with the question.
1: And our listener Dan Melnichuk got in touch agreeing, saying the colour of phlegm has nothing to do with it being a cold or a flu having a bacterial infection on top. The green colour, he says, comes from dead cells. And Stephen on Facebook says, if it's a pucker cold, it usually is clear when you have the sneezing fits and that increasingly turns green as the cold's on the way out or going chesty. I'm usually pleased when it goes green when I have a cold because the end is usually nigh. Well, with that cleared up, let's hear back from Hannah What we've got in store for next week's question. Do you pick your nose with your left hand or are you a right-handed picker?
5: Our next question is in from Ray.
7: Why are people either right-handed or left-handed? What possible benefit does that have over being ambidextrous? I find I'm right-handed, right-footed and even right-eyed. When I wore a single muff headset on my job though, I preferred it on my left ear and not my right. So that's a bit of a question. Oh, and do animals also display handedness?
5: So, left or right-handed? Are other animals like this? And does it scramble your brain if you mix your left or right feet, arms and ears up?
1: Hannah Critchlow, and if you have an answer for us, then you can get in touch by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Scientists, the answer to our quiz we asked you a bag of Brazil nuts contains an equivalent dose of radiation to what? One person suggested a mobile phone, but actually the answer is it's ionising radiation, it's a chest x ray. A chest x ray is about four and a half days of solar radiation exposure or eating a bag of Brazil nuts because of the soil that they grow on. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Julian Cotti, David Sabon, Graham Maidment and Marianne Ha. Thank you also to Ginny Smith for joining me. The production was by Kate Lamble. Now, next time we're going to be hearing from one of the largest science conferences the world has. We'll be heading off to the AAAS in Chicago and Hannah and Kat will be here to find out how research that's being presented there is affecting us here in Cambridge. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.